0: You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn Midtown. In this series, we are following Jesus as he calls us to take on his yoke so that we may experience true flourishing. Well, peace be with you. What a joy it is to uh, see you all uh, this morning. Uh, And before we dive into uh, today's text, If you are a first-time guest, welcome. Uh, We are so glad that you are here. I pray that a song would be sung or a word spoken that will enrich your life in Jesus. And to those who are watching from home, what's up, what's cracking? I hope you're doing well. We miss you. I also want to pause and just uh, praise the Lord for Pastor Robert. Pastor Robert, who uh, led us uh, through the giving of today's uh, liturgy, Uh, This year, later this year, we'll celebrate 15 years of ministry here at Sojourn. Amen. We've got some some faithful pastors that's been here for a long time. I think of him, Pastor Nathan Salone, Pastor Luke Skeen, guys that's been around for a while. And one thing that Pastor Robert has been able to accomplish uh, just a few months ago was that he um, uh, wrote a book. He wrote a book, and the book is called Restore, all right? And so I just want to encourage you all, you heard some testimonies about what they do in Restore. You also can purchase the book to learn more about it. It's a book meets a workbook where you are able to do uh, some exercises um, to learn more. So uh, we praise God for our our pastors. I didn't uh, mention we've got Pastor Brandon Hohalter here who's been a pastor here for over 10 years. We've just got a lot, a lot of guys around um, who's been here. So we just want to give honor where honor is due. Let's pray and we're going to dive into today's text. Gracious Father, you are so good, you are so faithful, you are so loving, you are so merciful, so beautiful. Uh, I pray, Lord, that we would just continue to worship you, to worship you because you know our name. I pray that you would meet each person where they are today. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name we do pray. And the church said, Well, I must confess that sometimes in my spiritual walk and journey, I feel like there's a, a little bit of jackal and hide going on inside of me, right? Uh, some days I wake up and I'm ready to go and, and live my best life now for Jesus. And other days, man, it is, it's a struggle. And some days when I'm like really confident, um, by the end of the, in my walk with Jesus and and my devotion to Him, by the end of the day, I, I, it just feels shaky, right? Uh, and this week was just a reminder of that. I remember one night uh, the Lord just blessed, and I went to sleep with my heart happy in the Lord, and uh, had a great time of prayer. Said so I just can't wait till the morning to crack open my Word and spend time with Jesus. And I did. I I got up, got in the Word, and man, I was in the Word for about maybe two minutes tops. Uh, Before I fell asleep and about 30 minutes later realized I just missed my whole time for personal devotion. Right. Um, There's a, a sense of faithfulness in me. And then at times there's a sense of fickleness that's in me. And Jesus in this text is going to get to both our faithfulness and our fickleness. In verse 41, Jesus says to the disciples, stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. You know, the Apostle Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 7, where uh, this this battle that's going on inside of him. He says, hey, I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do... It anyway, this jackal and hide, this struggle of wanting to be faithful to Jesus, believing we're ready to die for Him, and simultaneously, it seems like um, this fickleness of, of not being ready and being proven wrong over and over again. Well, I praise the Lord that the Apostle Paul didn't end there, but at the end of Romans 7, he talks about the hope that we have in Christ. Jesus. And that's what I want to talk about this this morning. And if I was to kind of summarize this text and what we're going to spend the next 30 minutes talking about, it would simply be this. Your fickleness, your weakness is no match for Jesus's faithfulness towards you. I'm going to say that again. Your fickleness is no match for Jesus's faithfulness towards you. And someone needs to hear that and be reminded of that. Growing up, my parents used to play a a song uh, called It's a Thin Line Between Love and Hate. Anybody ever heard that song? It's a thin line between love and hate. Nope. Nope. Y'all not cool. Y'all not with it. Anyway, it's a thin line between strength and weakness. It really is. It's a thin line between strength and weakness. And here's what I want to show us uh, intermingled in this text and throughout is this. Uh, First, we're going to look at, and we're going to see in the text, the disciples' uh, false confidence. And then uh, second, and weave throughout this text, we're going to look at Jesus's faithfulness. And then I'm going to close with two points of application. And so to remind you, last week, we looked at how Jesus inaugurated the new covenant with a meal that we call communion or the Lord's Supper. He took a Jewish uh, tradition and, and, and feast and festival, um, and he uh, transformed it into a meal that we Christians take. And it was a beautiful meal as the disciples uh, would have known what was happening um, when Jesus says that I am inaugurating a new covenant with you. As faithful Jewish men, they would ha- their minds would have went back to the prophets Ezekiel and Jeremiah and this promise that God was going to take heart, a heart of stone and turn it into a heart of flesh. And he was going to write his word upon their heart and, and enable them to live for him. So Jesus does this. And I love what the text says. The text says that they left, they left encouraged singing hymns um, and going into the Mount of Olives. So the disciples were on a spiritual high. In fact, earlier night, Jesus said, one of you are going to betray me. And uh, the disciples went around the table and he in essence says, Lord, surely not I. They were confident they were doing well, but things are going to go downhill pretty quickly. In verse 31, it says, then Jesus said to them, tonight, all of you will fall away because of me all of you. That word fall away is the word stumble. It's the word that Matthew has used throughout his gospel. They're going to stumble because of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. And so Jesus um, does something that's, that's really powerful here. He's going to quote Zechariah chapter 13, verse seven through nine. And this this week I was meditating and reading through Zechariah 12 and 13. I was just reminded of how fantastic and uh, intricate the Bible is. Because in Zechariah, there is a prophecy that is spoken. And the text basically talks about and gives a vision of a shepherd who is going to be struck by God. And when the shepherd is struck by God, Um, all of his sheep is going to scatter. And out of the scattering of his sheep, eventually one third of the sheep are going to come back um, and and, and be with the shepherd after a process of refining and purification. And so this text is a messianic text that was um, a prophetic text that was pointing to the Messiah that was ultimately pointing to Jesus. And Jesus here is telling them, you all are not as strong as you think. You all are are not as faithful to me as you think. I am going to be struck. Y'all are going to scatter. And, And this is why the Bible is so fascinating. Hundreds of years before Jesus, we have prophecy after prophecy of what was going to happen in the life of the Messiah. And Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, throughout their writings, and here we've learned, especially in Matthew, we see that Jesus is bringing up these prophecies to show that he is fulfilling them, that he is the Messiah. There are over 300 prophecies, 300 prophecies in the Old Testament pointing to the Messiah. In Zechariah chapter 9, it says that the Messiah will be betrayed by 30 pieces of silver. And last week we read how Judas betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Many of us know Isaiah chapter 53, which talk about the suffering servant who will die for his people's transgressions. We know that Jesus on the cross dies for his people's transgressions. Psalm 22 uh, 22 is an amazing psalm that explains the Messiah's clothes will be divided and broken up amongst those whom killed him and that his feet will be pierced. And even though he will experience piercing, he will not have a bone broken. And we're going to see next week in Matthew 27 that Jesus is going to fulfill this. All I'm trying to tell you is Jesus is a bad man. (laughs) Jesus is the Messiah of the world and he knows what's coming and he knows what's best. So here's a little advice. Here's a little advice. Listen to Jesus. You're not smarter than Jesus. I don't care how you feel. I don't care who's telling you different. Jesus knows what he's talking about. I love verse 23. But after I have risen, Jesus said, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. So Jesus lays out his whole plan. He's like, yo, I'm about to be struck, I'm about to be crucified. I'm going to rise from, I'm going to die, I'm going to rise from the dead, and then I'm going to go ahead of you and meet you in Galilee. It reminds me of uh, what the legend is around Larry Bird. Have y'all heard about the Larry Bird legend? And how when when Larry Bird, probably got some Indiana people here, some Hoosiers. All right, God bless your heart. Amen, amen. Praise the Lord. Chicago all the way. Yes, love you though, love you. I'm just messing with y'all. I'm too close to Indiana to say that, ain't I? Yeah. (laughs) But Larry Bird, when he was in his zone, one of the greatest shooters of all time, legend has it that he would talk smack. And what he would do is he would tell the players who were guarding him what he was going to do the next time down the court and then do it. He would say, now, listen, man, next time down the court, I'm going to dribble left. I'm going to spin right and I'm going to do a fadeaway jump shot for three. And then the legend has it. Players would say and he would come and do boom. Boom. Ugh. Ugh. And then walk back down the court and say, "Man, I told you what I was going to do. Why you couldn't stop it?" And so every time I read this passage, I think about Jesus doing this like juke move on him. He's like, "I'm telling y'all what I'm about to do. I'm about to die. I'm going to rise, and then I'm going to meet you in Galilee." Right? (laughs) Verse thirty-three it shows the disciples overconfidence. Peter told them, "Even if everyone falls because of you, I will never fall away." So emphatic. And Jesus is like, truly, I tell you, for real, for real, tonight before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. It's night and we know roosters, crows, it's getting close to morning. And I just imagine that Jesus's voice here is not judgmental or or condemning. It's just like Peter. Yo, I made you. I know you. I know when you rise and when you lay down. I've read the book. I know my purpose. Bro, you you're not as strong as you think look at this, verse 35. Even if I have to die with you, Peter told him, I would never deny you. And all of the disciples, all of them like, yep, it's true. I wouldn't deny you either. And then in verse 36, we see the next scene is Jesus taking the disciples to uh, Gethsemane, which is, uh, literally means oil pressing. And here we're going to see that Jesus is going to be be pressed himself as he gets away and he goes to pray. And he tells the disciples to, to sit over here and pray. Now, interesting enough, in verse 37, Jesus takes Peter and the two sons of Zebedee a little farther with him to pray. And I often wonder why does Jesus separate the disciples like this? So Judas is off betraying them. You have then, what, eight disciples, and then you have this inner circle of three. And what's fascinating about Jesus' inner circle is these three were really confident. The sons of Zebedee is also called the sons of thunder. It was a nickname that Jesus gave them because once they talked about uh, raining down fire from heaven on people who didn't turn to follow Jesus. And Jesus, is like, y'all doing a little much, right? But also in Matthew chapter 20, we see that the sons of Zebedee probably put their mother up to going to Jesus and um, asking Jesus that when his kingdom was to come into full tuition, could her sons, James and John, sit on his right hand and on his left, um, which was positions of honor. And then Jesus responds to them and, and asks, essentially, is, are you able to drink the cup From which I am about to drink from, right? It's a powerful moment. So these two men, James and John, they have a lot of confidence in their own strength. They have a lot of confidence in that they really love Jesus, so much so they think that they should be his right and left hand men when he, the Messiah, takes over and puts everything back in control in the way that it should. But Peter does too. Peter is the apostle with the foot shaped mouth, and he is constantly overconfident. And so, what Jesus does, he takes them to this place of Gethsemane. We've got a picture up here of Gethsemane, which is actually taken by our very own director of arts and culture, Michael Winters, a couple of years ago when he went to Israel. And he takes them into this little garden, and the Bible says that he begins to pray. And what we're going to see in this text is Jesus is going to pray three times. Later on in the text, it essentially says he says the same prayer three times. And he's going to go to the disciples in between praying for each time, and he's going to be uh, disappointed that even though these really confident men who say that they're willing to die for him, um, even though they have all this confidence and all this willingness to die for him, that they're not strong enough to pray with them. And so we see in verse 38, listen to Jesus. He said, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake with me. Deeply grieved to the point of death. Most theologians say that this term uh, deeply grieved does not um, uh, appear regularly in the Greek New Testament. And they point out that it's probably a stronger word than than deeply grieved or greatly sorrowful. One theologian, uh, Leon Morris, says that it actually, the feeling in which Jesus was experienced could be equated to a husband who goes home and he finds his wife and his kids slaughtered. Jesus is going through it. This is a deep soul grief. And we know this because of his prayer. And he prays the same thing, my father. It's a prayer of intimacy and sonship. My father, I have a father. If it is possible, that's a prayer that shows his humanity, Even though Jesus is fully divine, 100% God, he's also 100% human. And I believe as we see throughout uh, Matthew and what theologians call the hypostatic union, that there was times where where Jesus was not able to tap into his divinity and he experienced what it was like to be 100% human. And here he's crying out to God. He's like, Lord, I I don't know. Maybe maybe I don't see. Maybe I don't don't quite remember. Is, Is there any other way? For redemption to happen than for me to drink from this cup. You see that? Let this cup pass from me. Verse 42, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it. We're going to talk about what this cup is in a second. But then we see Jesus surrender in his faithfulness in the midst of deep heart agony. In the midst of bone-shaking pain, in the midst of of a healthy fear, in a healthy, non-sinful anxiety, Jesus prays, yet not as I will, but as you will. He points us back to the Lord's prayer, Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What a powerful prayer. But here's the question that I want to pose for you and that we need to wrestle with. Reading this week, one theologian really helped me to pause and to think about this. Why is it that Jesus, who is the son of God, who is all powerful, who is the most creative person to ever live, who raised Lazarus from the dead, a young woman from the dead, uh, a dead boy uh, to life, why is it this strong, confident leader, why is it that in this time of death, he seems to be bucking under pressure? Where's Jesus' courage? Why why is this trial about to take him out like this? That's a question that we, we must grapple with. Because there's been some human beings who have faced death, it appears, more strongly and more courageously than what we're seeing right here in this text. I mean, Creasy from Man on Fire, played by Denzel Washington, Creasy Bear, right, went to his death with strength as he defended this young woman's life. Why is Jesus struggling? I mean, Iron Man, end game, right? Takes the little glove off, you know, you know. Bold. Gomorrah sacrificed herself for the rest of the Avengers. She had courage jumping into that pit. My favorite gladiator, Maximus. Are you not entertained? had courage going to his death. And dare I not say Luke Skywalker? (laughs) Seemed to face his death courageously. Why is Jesus so troubled? So troubled. Luke chapter 22, verse 44 says, being in anguish, he prayed more fervently, And his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. He's so distressed. Once enough, the gospel says that his sweat becomes like blood. And I researched it this week that there is actually a disorder that occurs where sweat glands uh, begin to to intermingle with with blood vessels and, and blood begins to come out of the sweat glands. And this normally happens, rarely happens, but it normally happens when someone is under extreme stress. Why is Jesus in Gethsemane sweating blood? Why not be courageous? After all, he's God. Polycrop. who was a student of the Apostle Paul around 160 AD, was martyred. Legend has it that this bishop of Smyrna, which is a city in Asian minor, was courageous as he died. The story is told that he is being walked uh, to the point of his death, which was death by fire on a stake. And his one wish was to just pause and pray. They said that he paused and prayed calmly. And then like a straight up G, he said this to the crowd. The fire that threatens lasts only an hour and is quenched with just a little. But what do you know of the fires of judgment? So come on, boys, bring the fire. Say, listen, this fire I'm about to partake in at most will burn me for an hour. But you all have to deal with hell's eternal fire. Bring on the flames. Courage. Well, I think we can understand Jesus's agony when we understand the cup. The cup points us back to Isaiah 51 and 17. Isaiah says, wake up, wake up, O Jerusalem. You have drunk the cup of the Lord's fury. You have drunk the cup of terror, tipping out its last drop. Isaiah speaks of God's wrath poured out on Israel because of their rebellion and sin as a cup. Jesus multiple times here talks about drinking from this cup. What is in the cup? The cup is the wrath of God poured out for our sins. And so while Jesus is praying, Jesus knows that he's about to die the most gruesome death that there ever was which is death by the cross and part of what shakes jesus is the physical agony of the cross jesus is going to be beat with a cat whip 39 lashes with bones in the whip it's going to go against his back his back is going to be placed on a rugged cross the romans they perfected death by the cross. They had it down to a science to make someone suffer. He knew that nine-inch nails was going to go through his palms, that a crown of thorns was going to be placed on his brow. He knew that his mother, his mother, his tender, sweet mother, who wrote a poem and a song that most of uh, 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 family in, in Israel would know just a century later was going to witness him be stripped naked, pierced with the spear in the side, and mocked. He knew the pain of the cross. Ancients often spoke of the crucifixion with horror. Cicero's history reveals that a common loathing of death on the cross when he says that, the cross was the most extreme and ultimate punishment of slaves, of slaves. It was the cruelest and most disgusting penalty. Josephus called the cross the most pitiful of deaths. Jesus knew the physical pain was coming, but I want to present to you, I don't believe that that was where the most of Jesus' agony rested. I believe that Jesus' agony mostly is going to rest on. What we see is going to happen on the cross in Matthew chapter 27, 46, when Jesus is hanging on a cross and he says, Eli, Eli, sabachthani? my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? I believe that the agony that Jesus is experiencing on the cross, a large part of it is, is that he knows that for a moment in history, for the first time in all eternity, he will experience the wrath of God the Father. He will experience this eternal, just, and holy, God's perfect wrath. He will experience the Father turning his face away from him. May the Lord bless and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you. That's Israel's prayer. And the Lord is not going to let his face shine upon his own perfect son. And as William Lane says here in Gethsemane, God had already begun to turn his face away from Jesus. And I want you to pause because oftentimes as Christians, we hear this and we become too familiar with the story. But I want you to pause and just close your eyes right now. And I want you to think of the worst moment you had this week. We know that sin is not just a, a sin of, of, of doing something, of deeds. It's a sin of both commission doing it and omission. What was the worst thought you had? What was the worst thing you did this week? Just pause and think about it and sit in it. Was it the moment you blew up with a friend? The moment you you lie to someone in order to look better in their presence. Was the moment you slept with someone who you're not in covenant relationship with. Through marriage. What What's the moment now? I want you to hold that thought and I want you to think about the worst sin that you've ever committed. It's the worst sin that you've ever committed, that if I was to put it on a screen right now, you would run out this sanctuary in horror because hundreds of people now know about it. And hold that thought. I want you to open your eyes. As Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, The penalty, Christian, of your very worst sins and every sin you've ever committed and will ever commit was being placed upon his back. And he knew that soon he who was the blessing of the nations would become a curse and all of God's holy, eternal wrath got to get back, it's COVID time, (sighs) would be placed upon him. He who knew no sin would become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And he's crying out, Lord, if there's any way possible, for Jamal to become redeemed without you turning your face from me and placing this on me on the cross, would you take it if there are any way possible for Johnny Bahona's sin? To be paid for without me going up Golgotha's hill. If there's any way possible for Pastor Brandon's sin, for Pastor TPJ's sin, for Brother Kip's sin, for Brother Jerry's sin, for Sister Lori's sin. If there's any other way for this to be paid for without me going this route, would you? Would you work it out? Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7 through 8, speaks of Jesus' experience when it says, During his earthly life, he offered up prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. Lord, save me from death, he's praying. And he was heard by God because of his reverence. He was heard by God because even as he offered up these prayers, he lived In deep reverence before the Lord saying, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will. Verse 8. And although he was the son, although he was the son of God, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And here's what the author means. Not that there was a time where he wasn't obedient. But he's saying he learned obedience, meaning he was put in a, in a, a position that no one had ever been placed in. And he learned how to faithfully surrender in the most extreme of circumstances to the Father's will to be obedient so that you and I, when we are fickle, we could receive the forgiveness of sin. But I want you to notice that something changes in verse 44. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? See, the time is near. The son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. That's who he came for, sinners. That's who he came for. And as we read this, remember, the sinners aren't those people out there. Sinners, you and me. We were walking towards him in that garden. We are the ones who betrayed him. We are Judas's. But suddenly courage comes. Verse 46. Get up. Let's go. See, my betrayer is near. What changed? How does Jesus go from from just being buckled at the knees to all of a sudden being courageous? Like, yo, it's time. Let's go. Let's rock. It's about to go down. Well, in Luke's gospel, Luke tells us that an angel meets Jesus in the garden and encourages him. I have no idea what that means. Maybe an angel literally came in physical form and met him. Maybe it was a messenger. Something happens, and all of a sudden, Jesus sees something. And all of a sudden, this agony, listen to this, is turned to joy. Say, where do you read that in text, Pastor Jamal? Well, I read that in the book of of Hebrews, and I've wrestled with this for years. How how can they say for the joy of the cross? Jesus says, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, he despised the shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. What happened in the garden? What did that angel share? I don't know, but I've got a feeling that what Jesus saw can be summed up in one word. You. The angel showed Jesus what was happening On the other side of the cross, he reminded him that the cross was not the end of the story. There's a resurrection and there's an ascension and there is a placement on the right hand side of the father. And as he bears this cross, he will be seated on the right hand of the father and he will become our mediator. His blood will intercede for us, and suddenly Jesus got a burst of strength and energy and he thought about how every step he took, every stumble that he made on that Via della Rosa, every piercing, every mocking, every shout of disgust and every deep breath that he would take on that cross was now a, a, a source of joy because he knew that he would redeem you. And that because of the cross, that you would be able to come boldly before his throne of grace, that you would be able to come not in fear, guilt, and shame, but that you could come with your head lifted, high, knowing that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he said, let's go. Let's get it. I'm ready. I've got, I've got a people to redeem. Let's get it. There's some sins that need to be forgiven. There's some shame that needs to be broken. There's some guilt that needs to be written. Let's get it. Let's go. It's time to go after it. He had a people from every nation, tribe and tongue on his mind. And I'm so glad he went to the cross. I'm so glad Jesus prayed. I'm so glad he took that angel's encouragement. I'm so glad the story doesn't end in Gethsemane. I'm so glad he was wounded for my transgressions. Because I'm fickle, y'all. But he's faithful. So that in times of fickleness, when we fall, we don't have to beat ourselves up. And we don't have to give up. All we have to do is look up and praise God for his spirit that he's going to help us to get up. Jesus. Two really quick points of application as we leave this place. First, both of them are around this theme is just stay awake. Even in your fickleness. Just practice staying awake. You're going to fall. But wake back up and press on. It's interesting that Jesus tells them in verse 40. So you couldn't stay awake with me one hour. Because that points us back to the parable of the ten virgins and their struggle to stay awake. Jesus was graciously breaking the disciples' confidence and showing that if you are going to go about your spiritual life with self confidence and prayerlessness, you are going to be eaten alive. But I'm telling you to stay awake. And the way you stay awake, I'm going to model it for you, is to get on your face and to live on your face before God, is to cultivate an intimate, vibrant relationship with the one true living god is to make that sacrifice of praise to 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 create a a a closet a, a place a, a private place of prayer when you feel off balance and when you're tempted and you feel like giving up to press in to go into the, your place of Gethsemane to that all oh, pressing, that the place of, of pruning, that place of making and, and shaking. God is encouraging us and telling us that the way that you become strong is by embracing your weakness, is by embracing your dependence on Christ. It's by going to him and admitting, Lord, I'm not as strong as I think I am. I need your help. I need your power. I need your grace. I need your mercy. I need a, a better vision. I need to see what's on the other side of this cross because this cross sometimes is too much to bear. But Lord, would you show me that there is resurrection and that you are with me and waiting for me in Galilee. Oh, God wants to raise up a generation of people who who are willing to press. When Satan punches, we don't punk out, we press. When Satan discourages us, yeah, we, we, we gather ourselves together, but we press. When folk tap on our last nerve, we don't go rally for rally and tick for tack, but we press. When people lie on us, we press. When people try to break us, we press. When our own sin is discouraging us, we press. And we don't press in strength. We press in weakness on our face before the Lord, knowing that when we are weak, he is strong. God's like, if you just press, I'll meet you in your pressing. I'll meet you in your brokenness. I'll meet you in your faithlessness, because when you are faithless, remember, my son was faithful. And you know how you can count on me meeting you? Not because of how you feel. Not because of an experience. But because of what happened over 2000 years ago on the cross. When Jesus stretched out his arms. And he died for you. When he gave up his life for you, that was your down payment of assurance that he is for you and that he would never leave you nor forsake you. And he he already knew when he saved you that you were weak. He didn't save you because you were strong. He already knew your deepest and your darkest sin before you committed it. He knows when you rise up and where you lay down, and he still loves you. He loves you because he is good. He loves you because he is faithful. He loves you because he is true. He loves you because he is just. Nobody will ever love you like Jesus loves you. He loves you. He loves you. He likes you he sings over for you. He's waiting on you. He's waiting to meet you face to face so you can see his pierced arms and his wounds. The one who healed people of all diseases and all calamities chose in this next life to keep his wounds. He could have just had him healed, but in Revelation we see a lamb on the throne of God as slain. And the reason he stays slain is so that for all eternity when you look at him, you can remember that even though he's able to cover up and heal his own wounds, that he keeps it there because it is a constant reminder of his love for you. Why are you walking on the streets of that's paved with gold in the New Jerusalem? And Jesus walks by, hanging out with Peter, James, John, and whoever, and says, "What's up to you?" Like, there it goes again. Those those wounds. That was for me. That was for me. That was, was for me. And every Sunday, we celebrate the faithfulness of Jesus by taking a meal called communion. We take bread and we break it. We drink. Juice to remind us of his blood that was shed for us, this new covenant. And this meal reminds us that our fickleness, our weakness is no match for our Savior's faithfulness towards us. That every morning, every day, there's new mercy and new grace. Father, thank you so much for this meal that we're about to take. As repentant believers all over the sanctuary, take the cracker, symbolic for your body, and the juice, which is symbolic for your blood. I pray this morning, Lord, that you would remind, remind them of your love for them. of how Jesus pressed on in Gethsemane for their forgiveness, for reconciliation with you. I pray that you would remind them today that there is no more wrath left for them because it was poured out on on you. And that you absorb it all. You drank every drop from that cup. Teach us to know what it means to be free. For freedom, Christ, you have set us free. Remind us that because of your blood, we are saved from the penalty of sin as well as the power of sin. We can walk in obedience. to you because of your blood, because we're indwelled in the Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. There's someone here who doesn't know Jesus. I want to invite you today to give your life to Jesus. And I'm not talking about being churched. I'm not talking about being religious. I'm talking about having a relationship with him. By placing your faith in him and surrendering your life to him. We want to invite you to come today, to come to Jesus. After service, talk to me. I'm going to ask our, if we have any pastors here to stand, our staff. Would y'all just stand so that people can see you? got men and women in the sanctuary that would love to talk to you about what it means to follow Jesus and here's why it's important if the wrath of God buckled God what do you think it's going to do to you if Jesus facing God's wrath was too much for him I'm telling you it's too much for you but even more than that God is inviting you to an abundant life, to a life of forgiveness, reconciliation, peace, and joy. He's inviting you to know him. Come to him today. Hi, I'm Jamal Williams, lead pastor of Soldier in Midtown. Thanks for listening. At Midtown, we value gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless mission. For more sermons, info about our church, visit SojournChurch.com Midtown.